we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold in my early days i faced a pivotal moment in my career instead of following the herd into traditional finance i charted my own course despite skepticism i founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility through perseverance i established myself as a leading voice in finance proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed to get what you want sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail that's what harry's did seeing people tricked by expensive razors harry's took a stand Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, interview, all on Indeed. So you can get started now with a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. The offer is valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I had a very busy day today, and so I'm not actually recording this podcast until late on a Wednesday evening. So it's not going to get uploaded till Thursday morning. So when I'm talking about stuff that happened today and you're listening to this on Thursday, I'm talking about the stuff that happened on Wednesday. And you know, my morning started, there were a lot of articles I was seeing online, and then I heard some uh, interviews on financial television about Jamie Dimon, and he had wrote a letter to JP Morgan shareholders in which he was very optimistic on the US economy. In fact, he called it another Goldilocks scenario course this happens a lot last time I remember people talking about Goldilocks was Larry Kudlow in the years leading up to the 2008 financial crisis that was Goldilocks too well we know how that ended right the big bad wolf came in and uh, basically blew down everybody's house but I'm reading uh, Goldilocks again 
Diamond is talking about an economic boom that he thinks is going to run until at least 2023. And it's going to be great because there's going to be low inflation or tame inflation, sustained growth, and only a measured rise in interest rates, right? Not too hot, not too cold, right? Just right. What do you think Jamie Dimon is going to say? He's the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. These guys are always bullish. I mean, they're basically paid to be bullish, and they're always going to be optimistic on the economy, on the market. It doesn't really matter. Uh, they're always going to find a reason to be bullish. And, you know, in one part, I do agree that there is a pretty good chance that the stock market keeps going up. But it's not because the economy is booming. It's because of inflation. And Jamie Dimon doesn't seem to understand the difference. In fact, let me read you one quote from that letter here. Quote, I have little doubt that with excess savings, new stimulus savings, huge deficit spending, more QE, a new potential infrastructure bill, a successful vaccine and euphoria around the end of the pandemic, the U.S. economy will likely boom, right? Boom. This is going to be an economic boom. Although he did write that the long-term effects of the economic boom won't be known for years, and it will likely take time to see how government spending, including President Joe Biden's proposed $2 trillion infrastructure bill will boost economic growth. Well, I can tell you right now, and I mentioned this on the last podcast, the infrastructure spending is not going to boost economic growth. It is going to restrain economic growth. It is going to cause the economy to be weaker or to have less growth than otherwise would have been the case absent the stimulus. You know, you would think that Jamie Dimon, would know a little bit about capitalism, given the fact that he runs J.P. Morgan Chase, right? A big firm in what is supposed to be a capitalist economy. And you think he would understand that the private sector is going to invest money more efficiently than the government will spend it. So every dime that the government is going to blow on an infrastructure project, assuming some of that infrastructure is actually viable, because again, we have no idea because when government spends money, they don't do a cost-benefit analysis, which is what the private sector does before they make an investment, because they need to have a return on that investment. So they're not going to squander resources if they can't create more value than the cost of the resources necessary to produce that value. The government doesn't have any of these analysis. It doesn't care how much resources it blows because it doesn't have to run a profit. And they're not risking their own money if it turns out that all this money has been a complete waste. So maybe some of that $2 trillion that the government is going to spend on infrastructure, maybe 10% of it may actually go to boosting infrastructure that maybe will help the economy. The rest of it is probably just going to be a pure waste. But all of that money came from the productive segments of the economy. In fact, again, they are talking about financing this, and at least they're talking about financing it, not just printing all the money, but they're talking about raising taxes on corporations. Well, what do they think the corporations were going to do with that cash if they didn't send it to the U.S. government? Well, they would have invested it themselves more productively in privately funded projects. And so the infrastructure that we get from government spending comes at the expense 
of the capital investment that the private sector would have made. So again, rather than talking about how much um, the government infrastructure spending is going to add to GDP, how about talking about how much all of the private sector investment that is going to be crowded out is going to subtract from GDP? Because all of this is a net negative, not a net positive. And you would think Jamie Dimon would understand this. But getting back to what he is saying about the economy, this is not going to be a boom. I mean, first of all, the only reason we have these savings is because people haven't had a chance to spend their stimulus money yet. It's not like Americans are earning money and then not spending it. They're still spending pretty much everything they earn and then some. It's just that they got a lot of money from the government and they hadn't had an opportunity to spend it. Although if you look at the consumer credit numbers that came out this afternoon at three o'clock, we had the biggest beat versus estimates in the history of the survey. They were looking for $5 billion growth in consumer credit. And that would have followed the January number where consumer credit was down $1.3 billion. Why? Well, because consumers got all these checks from the government. And so they didn't need to use their credit cards because they had all the stimulus cash. So that ended up getting revised from a negative number to a slight positive. 0.1 billion was the increase, but you know, pretty much flat. They were expecting 5 billion increase for February. Instead, we got a 27.6 billion increase. So that is the biggest beat versus what had been expected, I think, in the history of this consumer credit number. And outright, it is the biggest increase in consumer credit since November of 2017. So to me, this looks like the consumer is already running out of stimulus money to spend, and now they're spending their money the old-fashioned way. They're borrowing it. They're charging it on their credit card. Although there are some new stimulus checks that should be hitting their bank accounts, so maybe this number can take a break for a little bit. But none of this is economic growth. When you have the government simply printing money and letting people spend it, you're not going to get an economic boom out of that, nor are you going to get an economic boom from the government printing money and spending it on infrastructure or taxing corporations or the rich so that instead of private sector investment, we get government spending masquerading as an investment. Like the government likes to claim that when they're spending money, they're investing it. They never invest money because there's no P&L. There's no, they're not doing it for a profit. Every nickel uh, that the government spends is spending. Now, yes, it's possible that if they fix up a bridge in the long run, that may make transportation a little bit more efficient. Now, it would have been better had the private sector uh, built the bridge uh, than the government, and the government may build that proverbial bridge to nowhere, right? No private money is going to build a bridge to nowhere. No one's going to build a bridge that you can't recoup the cost by charging a toll. But the government doesn't give a damn whether anybody uses the bridge or not. What do they care? They just want to create jobs. And in fact, the infrastructure bill is called like the American Jobs Act, right? Or something like that. The purpose of infrastructure isn't to create jobs. In fact, what you want to do 
is build the infrastructure with as few jobs as possible. I mean, you want to economize on your resources. You want to use the least amount of material and labor to get the job done. But the government is saying, no, no, our goal is not the infrastructure. Our goal is just to create jobs and the infrastructure is just a byproduct, but it's really a make work program. You know, that reminds me, I think it was an old story of Milton Friedman, wherever he was visiting, they were looking at a construction site and they were talking about how many people these, uh, you know, bulldozers or uh, excavators, whatever they were using to build, they were thinking, look at all the workers who could have been digging with shovels that these big machines put out of business, right? And, and, and of course, the purpose is to build something, not to create jobs. In fact, you want to build something and use as few labor resources as possible so that those workers are freed up to use their labor for another purpose. So you can have whatever that project is plus something else. But then Friedman remarked, well, yes, but think about how many people with teaspoons those shovels are putting out of work, right? Whenever you come up with a labor-saving device, you need less labor. That's the beauty of the labor-saving device because you save on a resource and you free up that labor to do something else. Again, that was the point that I was illustrating in my book, How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes, in that when the island community first began and you had Abel, Baker, and Charlie fishing by hand, it took them all day to catch a fish because they didn't have any nets. They didn't have any capital. But once they had a net and they didn't have to spend a whole day's worth of labor fishing, they can catch a fish very quickly. Now they had more free time to devote their labor towards you know, building huts and doing other things on the island to improve their standard of living. But the government doesn't get this. They will look at infrastructure and look at the jobs associated with it, not as an ends to a means, but as a goal in and of itself. We don't care. We will pay people to dig ditches and then pay more people to fill those ditches back up again because we create a lot of jobs for dig ditchers. But the bottom line is you're not creating jobs. You are wasting labor. You're wasting those resources because at the end of the day, if you pay people to dig holes and then more people to fill those holes back up again, at the end of the day, you got nothing. You're exactly where you started, but you wasted all this labor. And what you have to think about is what could these people have been doing if we didn't waste their entire day digging up holes and refilling them? What might we have had but for the fact that we took all these people who could have been doing something productively in the private sector and instead we let the government use up this labor to dig holes and then fill them back up with dirt? But the point I was making is that the savings that we have are coming from the government just creating money, not from people producing uh, more goods and services. And in fact, a lot of these so-called savings I think that Jamie Dimon is referring to are the result of a lot of Americans not paying their rent, not paying their mortgages, not making the payments on their student loans. I was talking to a guy today. I did an interview uh, with a guy who uh, owns a lot of apartments all over the United States. And he's telling me about the people who have just stopped paying rent because they can't evict anybody. And who knows how long this is going to go on. But he mentioned one tenant in particular who hasn't been paying his rent, just bought a brand new truck, right? So, hey, I got all this extra money because I'm not paying my rent. So I'll go out and buy a truck. 
I mean, how much consumer spending is taking place right now because people are not paying their rent, right? Same thing with their student loans. A lot of people stopped making payments because the government said, hey, don't pay. There's no penalty. There's no interest. You have a moratorium. Okay, so people aren't paying. So people aren't spending money on rent or mortgages or uh, pay down their student loans. So sure, temporarily, they got more money to spend on stuff. But this is not an economic boom. This is all inflation. You know, we got more evidence of the inflation and the phony nature of the economy earlier this morning when we got the trade deficit numbers. We got the merchandise trade deficit for the month of February. And the the prior month was $68.2 billion. And the consensus was for a February deficit of 70.4 billion. Well, we actually ended up reducing the deficit for the prior month. They took that down to 67.8. So a little bit less than was originally reported, although that number was a beat. And I think this downward revision is still a beat over what they were estimating, I think, uh, from January. But the February number came out at 71.1 billion. So ahead of the consensus, but not quite as high as I think the high end. There was somebody maybe looking at $73.5 billion. Maybe we'll get that for March. But this $71.1 billion is a record. This is the biggest deficit in merchandise in one month in the history of the United States. So, so much for Donald Trump's promise that we're going to win on trade. Because remember, Donald Trump was president until mid-January. And this is a February number. So this is the first full month since Donald Trump left office. And he left us with the biggest merchandise trade deficit in history. So based on Trump's own, uh, you know, the way he describes this, Americans are now losing on trade bigger than they've ever lost before. Now, remember, Donald Trump promised we were going to win so much, we were going to get tired of winning. We were going to say, hey, come on, can't we just lose one once in a while, Donald, because we're winning so much? Well, we are the biggest losers ever. We obviously lost the trade war with China if our deficits are much bigger today than they were before the war started. So big losers, we're losing big league, big time, however you want to say it, on trade. Now, Donald Trump might say, hey, it's not my fault. You know, Biden's the president. He hasn't been president long enough. We have the worst trade deficit ever. It can't be because of Biden. Now, of course, Biden's policies are going to contribute to these trade deficits getting bigger and bigger and bigger, as are the the policies of the Fed. But Donald Trump clearly did absolutely nothing to turn around America's uh, trade position. He inherited a disaster on trade and he left a disaster to Biden. Nothing uh, changed. You know, Donald Trump likes to pretend that he kept his promises. This was his signature issue in the campaign. America is weak uh, because uh, we hollowed out our infrastructure. We're losing on trade. It's because of prior presidents who had bad trade deals. I'm going to renegotiate those trade deals and we're going to win on trade. And of course, we're losing bigger than ever. 
And so that was not a promise that was kept. And no one ever wants to uh, hold a president to account. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. But the, my point for this podcast is, again, this shows that this is inflation. This is not a booming economy. A booming economy would have smaller trade deficits. In fact, a real booming economy would produce surpluses. See, when you're talking about an economic boom, you should be talking about more production, more factories producing more goods, more innovation leading to greater production, lower costs. We should have so much abundance that we can afford to export all the surpluses to other countries that aren't as strong. After all, that's what America was like in the past. When we really had a booming economy, American factories were so productive, we made so much stuff that we had a huge surplus of stuff. And we sold that stuff all over the world because other economies couldn't make the stuff that we were producing because they weren't as strong. They didn't have vibrant, booming economies because they had too much government. They had too much regulation and too much taxes. 
We were the freest people in the world, and so we were the most productive people in the world, and we made so much stuff we couldn't even consume it. So we were able to sell our, our, our surplus to the rest of the world, and then we accumulated all this money because we had all these trade surpluses, and that's how we became the world's wealthiest creditor nation because we were able to earn money from trade surpluses and then invest the earnings productively. Today, of course, because we've had these massive trade deficits that are getting more massive now with each and every month, uh, we turned our position upside down. We went from the world's biggest creditor nation to the world's biggest debtor nation. In fact, we have so much debt that we have more debt than all the other debtor nations of the world combined. So this is not a booming economy. This is a busting economy. You just can't see it looking at these GDP numbers, but look at the trade numbers. But nobody wants to look beneath the smokescreen. They all want to pretend that what we have is legitimate economic growth. In fact, they want to call it a boom without any real regard for what's actually going on uh, beneath the surface of this phony prosperity is nothing but a classic economic bubble. This is all inflation masquerading as growth. In business, the key to success is finding your edge and then leveraging it. Well, if you're hiring, that edge is Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. That's post, screen, and interview. And you can do it all on Indeed. You can get a quality short list of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description. You can get it faster and then you only pay for the candidates that meet your must-have qualifications. Schedule and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. Indeed makes connecting with and hiring the right talent fast and easy. With tools like Indeed Instant Match, giving you quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description immediately and Indeed skills tests that on average reduce hiring time by 27%. You can choose from more than 130 skills tests or you can add your own and then add your own must-have requirements as you only pay for the applicants that meet them. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. And if you're hiring, you need Indeed. So get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. You get $75 credit at Indeed.com Peter. That's Indeed.com Peter. This offer is valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. I was watching on CNBC. They brought on Jim Paulson uh, to talk about Jamie Dimon's you know, boom call and how the market's going to keep going up until 2023 and whether or not Jim Paulson agreed with him or not. And it seemed like Paulson was supportive of Diamond's forecast. But Paulson then really started to talk about inflation and the fact that he thinks that we'd be able to let the economy run hot. And again, I hate that expression about the economy running hot, like the economy is a car and it can overheat if it runs too fast. And we're going to let it run hot because the idea is if you, the economy is going too fast, it could overheat, right? As if too much economic growth is a bad thing. It's not. You can never have too much genuine economic growth. It's this phony growth that overheats. 
That's the problem. Yeah, you print too much money and prices go up. It's not economic growth that causes prices to go up. In fact, you know, if you go back to the way the government has always been presenting inflation, and even most economists, they always try to convince us that inflation is uh, caused by prosperity. Too much prosperity means inflation, right? If we have too many people working, uh, then uh, the consequence is inflation. In fact, if you go back to the 1970s, when uh, Gerald Ford had those whip inflation now buttons, the whole purpose of that was that the people could whip inflation because the people were causing it, right? It was companies raising prices. It was unions demanding higher wages. It was landlords raising their rent. Like it, it was the people that were responsible for the price increases. No, the people raised prices, but they were responding to the loss of value of the money that they were being paid. That's where inflation comes from. It comes from the government. It comes from printing money. Although now you've got, you know, Fed chairman talking about how they think that money supply no longer has any relevance to inflation. I mean, could you believe you have a central banker and this is something that Powell has said that he doesn't think money supply is relevant anymore, that you don't have to look at the money supply, uh, you know, when you're thinking about inflation, which of course is sheer nonsense because inflation is everywhere a monetary phenomenon. I mean, that's Milton Friedman, but again, the definition of inflation, at least the old definition until they changed it, but the definition of inflation is an expansion of the money supply. That is the definition. You are inflating the money supply. I've said that many times on this podcast. Prices don't inflate. Inflate means to expand. You can't expand a price. You can only raise a price. What do you expand? Money supply. That is literally what is being expanded, inflating the money supply. That's inflation. To say that you don't have to worry about money supply, that money supply is no longer relevant to inflation. Guess that's like saying that oxygen is no longer relevant to breathing. Of course it's relevant, but the, the government always wants to try to blame the people for inflation. That's why they changed the definition. That's why they call inflation rising prices. Because when they talk about inflation as an expansion of the money supply, well, we all know who's expanding the money supply, the Fed. And we know why they're expanding the money supply because they're, the government's running deficits and they're monetizing it. But if you can fool the people into thinking that inflation is rising prices, well, then who raises prices? Well, companies, businesses raise prices, right? Landlords raise prices. So you can deflect the blame. But when they're talking about this overheating economy, it's the idea that if we have too many people working, the economy is too strong, the result is going to be higher prices. That's not the case. It's actually the opposite. As more people are working and they're producing more economic output, right? They're producing more goods. They're providing more services. Prices come down, right? As you increase the supply of goods available, then the price of those goods is going to come down. The more you have, the less it costs. That's basic economics. So people working doesn't cause inflation. Economic growth doesn't cause inflation. Money printing causes inflation or money printing is inflation. But if you print a bunch of money and give it to people to spend, yes, if they're not working, if there's no productivity associated with that spending, that's what overheats. Then you see the prices going up. And that is exactly what's going to happen now because you have all these people who are just spending money that they didn't earn. So they didn't get it as a result of added productivity, added economic output. 
They got it because the Fed printed the money. And again, you see the glaring evidence in these record trade deficits. And by the way, I I meant to mention part of the trade deficit numbers, finally, for the first time, I think since in about a year and a half or so, but America is now back to a net importer of oil. For a while, we were net exporters. And remember, a lot of people were saying, oh, America's energy self-sufficient. We're going to become this huge exporter of energy. I always said that was temporary. And now another one of my predictions that I had been making was that America was going to go back to importing oil. And that's exactly what we're doing. And we're going to be relying more and more on foreign oil uh, as uh, the months and years go by. And that oil is going to get increasingly more expensive and it is going to weigh heavily on these record trade deficits, pushing them further and further into record territory. But when Paulson was talking about economies overheating, right, he looked back to the American economy of the 1950s and the 1960s. And he said, look, this was the golden age of American capitalism. And, you know, I, maybe they call it that or the 1950s because You know, the 50s were a very prosperous time in America, mainly because we ended the Second World War, right? So we had a big reduction in government spending, and you had all these men coming back to the free market, coming back to the private sector from government employment, right, in the military. And so the 50s were a very prosperous time period for the United States, even into the 1960s. And Paulson was saying, hey, you know, we ran the economy hot. We had all this strong GDP growth in the 50s and the 60s, and we didn't have any inflation. You know, we didn't have any inflation until the 1970s, right? So he's saying, look, you know, the 70s was bad because, you know, the economy ran hot and we had inflation, but it ran hot in the 50s and 60s and we didn't have inflation. And so what he was saying was, hey, maybe we can do that again. Maybe this is going to be a repeat of the 1950s and the 1960s, not of the 1970s, meaning that maybe Jamie Dimon is right, that this is going to be a boom, that we're returning to the golden age of capitalism that we had in the 1950s. And that, of course, is complete nonsense uh, from Jim Paulson. And that's the kind of analysis that I guess you're going to get on CNBC, because America today looks nothing like America did in the 1950s, when we were the world's biggest creditor nation, when we had a booming export economy, when America was flooding the world with low cost, high quality manufactured goods. Remember the 1950s, that's when they had to name a town in Japan, USA, so they could say made in USA, right? I mean, nobody would buy stuff that was made in Japan in the 1950s. We made everything in America in the 1950s. So to try to say that America in the 2020s is anything like America in the 1950s. It's actually the mirror image. We couldn't be more different uh, from America in the 1950s than we are today. And so we're we're not going to have anything like that experience. But what I thought was the most ridiculous, uh, you know, oversight on the part of Jim Paulson, when he talked about the 1960s and saying, hey, we ran the economy hot in the 60s and there was no inflation, yeah, there was inflation. It's it was initially it was in the stock market in the Nifty Fifty. Uh, we had a big peak in the stock market in 1966 in that uh, you know mania, but the inflation that was created in the 1960s manifested itself in a much bigger way in the 1970s. 
In fact, the 1970s wasn't a decade of running the economy hot, right? The way he would describe it. We had lots of recession in the 1970s. The economy was very weak because we had to fight off the inflation that was created in the 1960s. That's what Jim Paulson didn't get. You know, we ran the guns and butter economy in the 1960s. And if you don't remember that term, what that meant is that we ran big deficits because we had two things the government wanted to do, particularly under uh, Lyndon Johnson. We wanted to fight the war on poverty, right? And of course, you know, in case you don't know, poverty won that war because there's a lot more poverty now than there was before we waged war. So the government couldn't win that war and it couldn't win the war in Vietnam either because we lost that one too. So we lost the war on poverty and we lost the war in Vietnam, but that was the guns and butter. We were spending money on butter, right, to win the war on poverty with all these great society programs. And then guns was to fight Vietnam. And on top of that, we sent a man to the moon. We had the space program and NASA to fund. So we funded go to the moon. We funded fighting a war in Vietnam and then fighting another war on poverty at home. And all this was paid for with borrowed money, deficits, money printing, right? That was guns and butter. We had everything. And the consequences didn't really rear their heads until the 1970s. In fact, it was because of all the inflation that we created in the 1960s that we went off the gold standard in 1971 because we printed so much money, we didn't have enough gold to back it up. And that was the problem. Then we started to see all the gold uh, leaving the country as people were trying to cash in their Federal Reserve notes for gold because they knew there wasn't enough there. And then we finally closed the gold window. But for Jim Paulson to look back fondly at the 1960s and to say, hey, we should just follow the example of the 1960s and we can have this great economic boom. We can have an economy that runs hot and we're not going to have any inflation. He doesn't get that the inflation of the 70s that he admits was a problem was started in the 1960s, the decade that he thinks was so good. That decade was a disaster and the price we paid for it was the 1970s. And then Reagan didn't clean it up until the early 1980s uh, with the help of, of Paul Volcker. But we are in a much worse economic position now than we were then. We're not going to have a replay of the 1950s because that's impossible. We can't even afford to do the 1960s because we're so much more broke now than we were then. So we're not going to be able to run the economy hot, so to speak, for a decade and then have the consequences in the 2030s. Uh-uh. We're going to have the consequences now. and We're going to be paying the piper. Our 1970s show is about to begin. And it's going to be a lot worse, right? Like most sequels, right? It's going to be worse than the original. So the original 1970s show was bad. Well, the sequel that we're about to see, or not only see it, we're about to live through it, is going to be much, much worse. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. 
all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In fact, more proof of how bad this is going to get, right? We got the Federal Reserve minutes, the FOMC minutes. They came out uh, about two o'clock this afternoon. And the, the main takeaway from the minutes is that the Federal Reserve is not going to try to forecast inflation, right? They're not going to try to get ahead of inflation by trying to forecast a pickup in inflation, and then trying to do something preemptively to head it off at the past, right? They're basically saying, look, we're going to wait until we see the whites of inflation's eyes before we fire a shot, right? We're, we're going to be very easy. And the reason they're saying this is they say, look, you know, we haven't had any inflation. It's been MIA for decades, right? Which, of course, we've had it. It's just that the CPI uh, doesn't reveal it because it was rigged by the government not to. And we ignore all of the bubbles where inflation is uh, playing a big role, like stock market, bond market, real estate market, cryptocurrencies, you name it. And of course, a lot of our inflation, by virtue of our trade deficits and the dollar's reserve status, we've been able to export a lot of that inflation temporarily to our trading partners. But it's all coming back when the dollar crashes. But the Fed is saying, and Powell is saying, that Fed's going to be patient they're not going to be preemptive. They think inflation is transitory. That's their base case scenario. They can ignore the pickup in inflation because it's transitory. But if it's not transitory, they will wait until they have real confirmation that we have an inflation problem, that inflation is running above their 2% long-term uh, expectations or inflation expectations that become unanchored, whatever it is. But the Fed is going to wait for inflation to be a problem and then it's going to solve it, right? Because this is a break from the supposed tradition of central banks where you don't wait for inflation to become a problem to try to solve it. You try to prevent inflation from ever becoming a problem in the first place. So if you think there may be inflation, you preemptively try to avert it. And that's what Powell says the Fed doesn't want to do. They don't want to try to fight an enemy that might not even exist. So they want to make sure that we have an inflation problem before they try to solve it. But there's a lot of hubris there because once you have the problem, it's not so easy to solve. I mean, there's that expression that a lot of central bankers uh, have used. I, I forget who originated it, but it's about you don't want to let the inflation genie out of the bottle, right? Why? Why? Well, because once the genie has been freed from the bottle, 
it's very hard to put that genie back in that bottle. So it's better not to let the genie out in the first place. But what Powell is saying is, hey, we're going to wait until the genie is out of the bottle and you know, running amok, and we have a big genie problem with inflation, and then we're just going to shove the genie right back in the bottle, no problem, and we're going to solve the inflation problem. Yeah, easier said than done. And it's difficult to put an inflation genie back in a bottle during normal times. We don't have normal times right now. We have a more highly leveraged economy than we've ever had. So we've never had an economy more dependent on low interest rates. But the only way to put that inflation genie back in the bottle is to raise interest rates much higher than what the Fed would have had to do to keep the genie in the bottle in the first place. Because once you let it out, you now have a much bigger inflation problem on your hands. And so now the interest rates have to go much, much higher because if the Fed stays at zero long enough to determine that the big increase in inflation wasn't transitory, that now inflation is running at five or 6% and it's going to keep going that way. And the Fed's still at zero and you have to go from zero to like seven, 8% interest rates right away, right? You know, just immediately. What's that going to do to the economy? It's going to completely implode. Is the Fed going to do that? Of course not. That's what I've been saying on this podcast. There is no way the Fed is even going to try to put the genie back in the bottle. In fact, they can't even try to keep the genie in the bottle. That's, I think, what the Fed knows. That's what's really different this time is the economy is so jacked up on cheap money and so levered up that instead of doing what past central banks have done and be preemptive to try to stop inflation, they can't do that because we can't even survive the preemptive rate hikes to prevent inflation. Well, if we can't survive those smaller rate hikes to keep the genie in the bottle, how could we possibly survive the much higher interest rates that would be required to get that genie back into the bottle once it's out? And what's really amazing to me about this is the Fed basically has this whole new policy with respect to inflation. Hey, we're not going to prevent the problem. We're just going to solve it as soon as we acknowledge it. Where's all the criticism? Why aren't other people in the mainstream saying, wait a minute, this is a huge risk. This is a Hail Mary here. I mean, the Fed is basically betting everything that inflation is transitory, right? They're betting the house, literally, because what if it's not transitory? What it would take, what would be required to fight that inflation threat would cause a much, much worse financial meltdown than 2008 with no bailouts. So why is anybody not saying this? And again, the only reason that the Fed would make such a crazy gamble is because they think they have no choice because they will create such a horrible crisis if they did the right thing now, if they actually looked to head inflation off at the pass, if they actually were raising rates right now, we would already have that financial crisis. So basically, all they're doing is trying to come up with an excuse not to do the right thing now. But the problem is, if they don't have the guts to do the right thing now, why would anybody think they're going to have the guts to do the right thing in the future when the consequences of doing the right thing in the future will be so much greater than the consequences of doing the right thing right now? Because when we kick the can down the road, we make the problems that they're so afraid to deal with bigger. I want to finish up the podcast, though, by talking about the digital yuan. There's a lot of stories I'm reading now about China coming forward with its own digital currency. And, you know, there's a big difference between a digital yuan, let's say, and a Bitcoin or any of these other 
uh, cryptocurrencies. You know, by the way, I happen to notice the total supply of uh, cryptos or altcoins, which, you know, basically anything that's not Bitcoin is an alternative to Bitcoin. And so they call those altcoins. And there's now 9,125 cryptocurrencies. I mean, 9,125. To put this in perspective, there's only 180 um, sovereign fiat currencies in the world. So we have 180 fiat currencies issued by governments. And we have 9,125 cryptocurrencies created in the market. And I looked at, there's 95 of these cryptos that have market caps in excess of a billion dollars. 95 of them. I mean, not too long ago, there was only 10 or so that had over a billion. Now there's 95. How can anybody say these things are scarce? I mean, there is an unlimited number of cryptocurrencies that can come into existence. I mean, there's people could just keep creating them and they will until the bubble pops and the market crashes and then there'll be no reason to come up with them. But as long as there's a fool out there willing to buy them, well, the market's gonna keep creating them. But the fact that after how many hundreds of years of all these nations being formed, we only have 180 fiat currencies, yet in about 10 years, uh, we have over 9,000 cryptocurrencies. So the inflation of cryptocurrencies far exceeds the inflation in sovereign fiat currencies. So we got a lot more inflation going on in the crypto space than in the actual space. But getting back to the point I'm trying to make about the yuan and why it will be not only very different than Bitcoin, but a threat to Bitcoin, assuming that Bitcoin is still viable by the time we have the, the digital yuan. Because unlike Bitcoin, a digital yuan will actually work. I mean, it'll actually be a viable medium of exchange, unit of account, store of value. I mean, it, it, it'll be an alternative because right now, if, if you want to buy yuan, if most people want to buy it, it's very difficult. I mean, most banks, you go to a bank, they're not, you can't buy Chinese yuan at, at an American bank. Uh, but if there was a digital yuan, anybody could buy it, right? Just go online and buy it, right? You don't need a bank. And now you have the yuan and you can save yuan instead of saving dollars. It's much more stable uh, than the US dollar, I think. I think long-term it's gonna appreciate and it can have very low transaction costs. Goods and services on websites all around the world can be priced in yuan and, and traded in yuan much more efficiently than Bitcoin. You know, it, it could actually work as a, as, a, as a currency. And by the way, the Chinese government has already stated that they are not gonna simply flood the world with digital yuan and, and use a digital yuan as a way to inflate the money supply in China. No, for every digital yuan that they create, they will destroy a paper one. So basically what would happen is the digital yuan and the paper yuan would circulate together and people would have a choice, right? You can carry the paper bills in your wallet or you can carry the digital uh, version in your smartphone. But they would have a one-for-one -one, parity relationship. And this would actually give the world a viable alternative to all the cryptocurrencies because it would actually work. And it, you know, so this, this, and not only is it a threat, obviously, to Bitcoin, 
but it's a threat to the U.S. dollar to the extent that the dollar doesn't have a digital version and the Chinese beat us to the punch, uh, then there's a, a viable competitor out there to the dollar. Now, I think the best thing that China could do would be to back the yuan with gold, right? And then they'd have a digital currency that was actually backed by gold, and that would give it even more value. But they have massive foreign exchange reserve in China. They have a productive economy. They don't have the huge trade deficits that the United States have. They obviously manufacture a lot of stuff in China. I mean, we're buying lots of stuff from China. So people need Chinese yuan if you want to buy Chinese uh, production. So I think this is a big deal. Now, of course, in the long run, my expectation is that even if the Chinese introduce the digital yuan and allow both the paper version and the digital version to circulate uh, in tandem, I think that the long-term plan will probably be to gradually phase out the paper currency so that everybody is transacting all in digital. And in fact, they're already doing that right now in China anyway, just not with a digital yuan, but they're using, you know, Alipay and all these other ways. I mean, people don't carry cash around. Everybody is paying with everything through apps and their cell phones. And so obviously a digital yuan would just make that more efficient and it would make it easier for people all around the world uh, to transact in yuan, not just the people living in China. But I think what the Chinese government does have in mind is to have greater control over the civilian population and have greater knowledge with respect to where their money is and what they're spending it on. Now, you know, I would not like that uh, as a Chinese citizen, and I'm not going to like it as an American citizen even more because it's not like I, I trust the U.S. government because eventually we're headed in that direction. Eventually, we're going to have digital dollars. You know, I think those digital dollars are going to buy a lot less than they do today. But eventually, I think that's the direction the U.S. government wants to take us in because they want to be able to know exactly what we're doing. They want to be spying on all of these citizens. And, and once they have more power, right, they want to be able to monitor what we're doing to the extent that there's some type of resistance movement that tries to fight for liberty and try to push back against tyranny, it'll be harder to do that if everything we're doing is monitored by the government. If they know our every move, if they know every single thing we buy, because you can't do anything uh, unless you have the uh, digital currency, which of course, again, people will revert to gold and silver if uh, they have no alternative. If they wanna be able to exchange uh, value goods and services for money without the government seeing what they're doing, well, they'll have to find a way out of the system. And cryptos won't do it, uh, but gold and silver will. But of course, you know, a lot of people, I'm reading these stories among uh, the crypto people, the Bitcoiners, about how they look at China's move to a, a digital yuan as somehow validating Bitcoin and um, making the case for Bitcoin even stronger. No, it, it makes the case much weaker. It blows Bitcoin out of the water because if you happen to live in like a Venezuela, right, or a Zimbabwe where you have hyperinflation and you're looking for an alternative and you can choose between Bitcoin or digital yuan, I mean, you're going to take the digital yuan every time. I mean, you have far greater stability. You don't have to run the risk uh, that the currency crashes on you right after you buy it. You have far lower transaction costs. I mean, it won't even be close. Uh, how cheap it will be to transact in a digital yuan 
uh, versus transacting in Bitcoin. And of course, you know, you'll be able to price goods and services in Yuan. I mean, they already do that, right? They already price. If you're in China and you're shopping, stuff is priced in Yuan, just like in America, stuff is priced in dollars. In Europe, it's priced in euros. Nothing is priced in Bitcoin. To the extent that you even pay for something in Bitcoin, it's after you negotiate a price in some fiat currency and then you decide or the, the seller agrees to be paid in Bitcoin and then you got to figure out how much Bitcoin you need to get the price that you already arrived at in a fiat currency. But when you're talking about a digital yuan, you can have all sorts of prices, goods and services that are priced in yuan. So you don't have to come up with it after the fact. So that is the first threat. Even before it's a threat to the U.S. dollar, it is a threat to Bitcoin and all other cryptocurrencies that would be greatly inferior to a, a digital yuan. And that would actually solve a lot of the problems that a lot of people thought Bitcoin was going to solve, but it was incapable of solving. Yes, it's still a fiat currency. It's not backed by anything. But I think of all the fiat currencies out there, it's probably one of the most solid. And certainly it would work uh, for the purpose of uh, transactions and, and, and commerce and moving funds uh, around the world. And of course, other countries can do the same thing. And you can have a digital euro, you can have a digital dollar, a digital yen. And all of this would take market share away from these cryptocurrencies. Not that they have that much market share to begin with, but it would prevent them from ever getting any market share. It basically destroys the narrative that the whole world is gonna one day adopt Bitcoin or something like that as, as, as money. It's never gonna happen because long before that happens, there will be far better alternatives available with conventional fiat as opposed to uh, digital fiat. Mm-hmm.